right, take your Bibles. Turn to Matthew 12. That's where we were Sunday morning. We're going to unpack a little bit more of Sunday morning. I'll give you a chance if you need to. to uh, we, can, we can talk, ask about that, anything from the previous week as well. Um, tonight I want to unpack a little bit more of, of that, of, of Matthew 12. Um, a couple specific questions that we got after Sunday um, that we'll answer tonight. And then we may get to the prayer of Agar. Or we may not. You never know. I mean, we haven't seen we got there yet. So it's still there. It'll still be there next time we get together. So um, we'll eventually get there. Um, I think, again, coming back to Matthew as an author, I think that for anybody that has watched The Chosen now, you can't get that image of Matthew out of your head, uh, which is a very distinct, real image. And, and, and so you're, every time you think of Matthew now, you know, that's where you kind of default to. Um, which is a great portrayal, by the way. Uh, but you, what you have to remember, though, is it for Matthew, um, I think I made this a statement a little bit earlier, but Mark and I were filming this afternoon some, some of our uh, 434 Motion shows that are coming up, and uh, I think I made the comment, as we were talking about the Bible, um, that you know, one of the books was written by an IRS agent. That was Matthew. Um, to be that, I don't, I don't know if we grasp the significance of what, what Matthew had done. Um, you know, Matthew had turned his back on his people. He had basically sold out his people. That would include his family. Um, in the pursuit of, for whatever reason, in the pursuit of, um, the perks, the responsibility, and working for the Roman Empire. Because that's exactly what, that's what he was doing. So by, by position, I mean, he, he as a tax collector had positioned himself as an outcast of his people, his culture, his family, his friends, his social groups. And that's Matthew. Um, he sold them out. And, I mean, you catch glimpses of it in shows that you see or hear stories of it. But, I mean, it was not, historically, it was very much um, allowable for Matthew to, to take whatever he wanted as his own cut as long as Rome got theirs. And if you go back and you take a look at when Matthew comes to know Jesus, I mean, it says, you know, that he, he, he followed him and then he threw a party. Well, you know, the party that he threw was for tax collectors, which prompted the Pharisees early on to give the criticism of, you know, you, Jesus, you're hanging out with tax collectors. I mean, that, that's not a compliment. You know, I mean, um, while protected by the Romans, and they were, they were, they were not well liked. That's Matthew. And so you have to, you, you, you have to keep that in mind when you read Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. Here's a guy, um, and, and we'll never know, and we don't have the arena to know what happened in all of his relationships with those, his new, with those who knew him, but it's not an accident um, that in all of his writing, the emphasis of Matthew is to tell the Jewish people how to get back what they wanted most, which was freedom. And if you can remember that when you read the book of Matthew and you read the stories that he tells about Jesus, there is something amazingly 
uh, enlightening, uh, I don't know the word you would use for it, but when you read through that lens, the stories have a little bit of a pop that sometimes you don't always get when you're just memorizing verses. Um, that's who Matthew is. Um, and that's not always the way that we've thought about Matthew. And that's certainly for Matthew then, his goal was to try to connect the dots for a Jewish audience. And he does it in the way that Matthew crafts his gospel with the details and with the stories and the way that he makes and illustrates the points. And as I told you Sunday, I mean, we have two stories that are obviously there for a reason and they're compacted together, but there's a driving point that he's trying to make. I mean, because of all the things he could have said about Jesus. I mean, you know, John, John said there was, he's, he did so much we couldn't really write it down. So we have snapshots. So why these were the most important things? Because, you know, if, if the big takeaway was Jesus is just button heads with the Pharisees. One of the two stories would have been fine. I mean, he, you know, he, he proved the point, right? The Pharisees didn't like him. We'll hear that a lot. So he didn't have to tell both stories. You know, so he uses them, and he uses them for a reason. That encounter, that day, those moments become impactful. And so Matthew, and again, as only, I guess, Matthew could do, is connecting dots um, this is very unique. Now go, if you will, uh, to Matthew twelve eleven and read that out loud. Somebody, mm, Matthew twelve eleven. Jesus said, "Go ahead, go ahead. Get, get together. It's fine." Jesus, <laughs> Jesus said to them, "Suppose one of you has a sheep and falls into a pit on the day of worship. Wouldn't you take hold of it and lift it out?" So obviously. Jesus is asking a question. The question we looked at it Sunday, um, and he's making the point: it, it, doing good on the Sabbath is okay. Doing what is right is okay. But there's a conclusion, and we didn't make this conclusion Sunday, even though it was definitely implied. Um, but the implication of this is: it's also wrong to do nothing when you have the ability to do something. So as Jesus is asking the question about, you know, would you, would you rescue your sheep? You know, there, there's, there's a driving piece behind that where if you have the ability to do something, you need to do it. And in parentheses, he's kind of putting, even if it's on the Sabbath, if you can do something that is good, that needs to be done, you need to do it. The day of the week doesn't matter. And I think that, that even for us sometimes, there, there's a, there's always that sense that we have of God's timing. What is God's timing for us? What is, what is God's timing for us? Which got me to the conclusion that we shared on Sunday morning. Um, and it was really much on my mind and heart when I said, you know, if you're worried about what to do, do the good that's in front of you now. I mean, do, you know, do what's there now. The timing is now. You have that moment. And I, I, I think, for me, I'll be honest with you, I overthink it sometimes. I overthink it. Should I? Shouldn't I? You know, you play that game. If I do this, well, you play all the scenarios, and sometimes the moment then is gone. But at the end of the day, you know, you should have just done something good, taken care of it. You knew what to do. You had the ability to handle it. You were there. You were, it was right in front of you. Just do it and just go on and look for the next thing to do. And, and as screwy as it sounds, and I'm not trying to oversimplify anybody's complexities of life, but boy, how... How different would our lives be if we really spent our lives looking for those opportunities to do good around us? 
we really would be so consumed with that that some of the other things that we get distracted by just wouldn't matter quite as much. I mean, wouldn't it be great to get to the end of the day and go to bed and, and know that we had just worn ourselves out because we had just done good in every opportunity we had? Every time there was an opportunity to do, good some, do something in front of us that was good, to do it. Not worry about whether we were right or not, but because it was good. <coughs> and because we seized it as a God moment. Because you, know, you can't do everything. You can't, but you can do something. And, and, and that really is a part of, of that of that question, that illustration that Jesus is giving there, even though Jesus doesn't conclude it that way, but that's exactly what he's saying. The sheep is in a well, aren't you going to get the well out? I mean, I have to get the sheep out of the well, right? I'll, I'll get the well out too, but I mean, you know, get the sheep out of the well. Um, you know. <laughs> anyway, just get the sheep out. And, and, and because to not do that is just wrong. And, and, and we forget sometimes um, that Jesus' argument is, is so relevant for that day, that time, that crowd. It, and he aims it at the Pharisees. And there's some other things that you need to let trickle down from that, that, that we just blow past way too quick. Because Jesus' question makes some assumptions. The assumption is that people are more important than animals. And Jesus is giving a very powerful indictment over how much more valuable people are than animals. Now again, uh, not what he said, but it's exactly what he said. He is making a huge statement over, okay, there is a pecking order to the universe. People are more important than animals. And I know animal lovers are out there, I got that, and I know they're all part of your family, and I'm not talking about that, but maybe I am. But... um, because, but you got to remember, this is, this, this is the same God who, when it came away for people to reconnect and to be forgiven and, and to find that reconnection with God, said, oh, yeah, we'll kill animals. And that's Jesus, right? He's God. So when Jesus stands and makes that statement, is not a man more important than that sheep? I mean, he is the very God who said, you know what? You kill these animals all day to make sacrifice to me. Yes. That's the way it works. And so you have to be asking yourself, well, is there anything more to it? And the answer is yes. Because in that New Testament era, there was such a perversion of human value that animals were considered by some cultures more important than people. For a Jew, that sheep would be more important than a Samaritan. For a Jewish man, that sheep might be more important than a Jewish woman. And and so, yeah, Jesus is talking about sheep, and we just walk away. We go, oh, oh yeah, I mean, yeah, people are a lot more important than sheep. But but when you look at the background of what he was saying and you think of the implications of what he was saying, I mean, it's, it's just a sentence he throws. But it's absolutely loaded with meaning. And it's powerful. And he's talking about doing the good thing. But there is so much there. Uh, by the way, if you want to make an application of Scripture, 
Um, you know, we live in a culture that will save spotted owl eggs, but abort millions of babies every year. So don't think this is just a cultural thing back in the first century. Um, you know, we'll stop our car to carry a turtle across the road and to go kill someone for a car stereo or a pair of tennis shoes. I mean, you know, that's, that's the upside-down perverted world we live in, okay? Um, it's obvious in the Bible story what's more valuable, but we live in a culture that for the most part does not consider the Bible as an authority. And so everything is relative. And because everything is relative, we don't argue correctly because we have no foundation to argue with activists and crusaders that crusade for the wrong things. See, I mean, if you think about the background of this story, it has huge implications in our culture today. Because we have to walk away from it as followers, and, and the conclusion that you have to make, and you, it's the only conclusion you can make, and you, know, and you know you want to make this conclusion is, Jesus is putting an incredible value on humans. And the value of your life, of an individual life, is more important than, and you can fill in the gap behind it, everything else. And if you didn't believe that, or there was any doubt about it, Jesus proved it when he allowed himself to be put on a cross to die. Not for a turtle, not for a sheep, not for animals, not for somebody's cause. He died for people. So in other words, he backed up with his life exactly what he said in this moment. Now, as Matthew is recording this, you, you know good and well that at some point when he's kind of editing his, his writings and his jotting down, he's, he, he's, he's tying this together in his head too. I mean, he knows this stuff. This is not a new thought. I mean, this is, this is part of the story. Um, and so Jesus is standing in the temple, and I have to, I mean, it, it's funny sometimes, at least for me, it's funny to try to think about Jesus being human and then knowing all things because he's God. And I mean, it, I don't know if you ever think about what would, what would you be like in that moment? I mean, how would you handle things in that moment? I mean, Jesus is standing there and he's standing next to this guy with a shriveled hand. And he knows he's going to heal him. But he knows that the guys who are the religious leaders, this guy's just an object lesson. They're not even seeing the guy with a shriveled hand. And Jesus is so cool about it. I mean, he just, he kind of takes in each moment. He kind of just, you know, he asks the right question. He's able to navigate. You know, he's got the personality. He's got the style. He's got the pushback that he needs. I mean, he is a master in that situation. You know, if I were had that responsibility, I would, I would screw up so bad. Because, you know, you, you, you hit the right button and all of a sudden, you know, you know, you know I, I'd be, fire from heaven would be coming down. And that's not Jesus. Jesus knows that, that this is what needs to be done. Ironically, if you look at the passage, go back and look again at the passage where Jesus heals this guy. I guess we're in verse uh, blah, 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 about 9. Jesus went over to the synagogue. He noticed the man with the deformed hand. The Pharisees asked him, 
parentheses in my Bible, they were hoping that he would say yes so they could bring charges against him. And he answered, if you had a sheep fell on it, the question. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored, just like the other one. And the Pharisees called a meeting on how to plot to kill Jesus. What does Jesus not do to the man with the withered hand? That's not rhetorical. What's not there? He didn't touch him. He didn't, he didn't touch him. him. He just told him to hold out your hand. He didn't touch him. So, let us connect the dots of the story. They accused Jesus of working on the Sabbath, but he never touched the guy. He's just talking. He doesn't say a word about, give me your hand, let me hold it, let me grab it. How's that feel? Feel. How's that feel? He doesn't do any of that. He just says to the man, stretch out your hand. Nothing in the passage indicates that Jesus touched him, which would have been work. All he's doing with the man is the same thing he does to the Pharisees. He's talking. The Pharisees are idiots. And they're accusing Jesus of doing something that even when you look at the passage, he doesn't do it. Now the point is, and obviously, Jesus' word is powerful and sufficient. No doubt about it. If Jesus says it, it's good enough. There's power, there's efficiency in it. And so, um, and so the occurrence of the miracle on the Sabbath is important. We talked about that, but that wasn't the point of what we did Sunday. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the implication of that is, and if He is the Lord of the Sabbath, then He is the Lord over the whole law because the Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. So if He is Lord of the Sabbath, and when He says that statement, that statement, too, is loaded. We hear it, oh, of course he is, he's Jesus. In the context, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the Sabbath. I am what this is all about. And so if the Sabbath was for rest, and Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, then now where are you supposed to find rest? In the day? Or in Jesus? In Jesus. And that's exactly what he was saying to them. Which meant the Pharisees were out of work. And so this encounter, as quick as it happens, from Matthew, is a moment where here is now an outcast of the Jewish people who has now stepped back in and is is trying to connect the dots for the Jewish people and the very people who have been some of the driving forces of exiling him away, he is now writing the stories that basically is setting the pretext for the fact that these guys are now out of work because Messiah is here. And Matthew's found it and he wants everyone to know. That's the implication of the phrase. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath, as Jesus explains, is, is for people. It's for them to find rest. It was not meant to make people's life difficult, which, of course, is what the Pharisees have done. And so he throws down the gauntlet here. There's no doubt about it. Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet. This is a full-on frontal challenge to the Pharisees. He basically is, is saying, you have misunderstood and you have misapplied the law. He says it all in one phrase. They misunderstood all of it. The Sermon on the Mount, 
earlier exposed a lot of that in detail, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Um, and that's why the Pharisees had nothing else to say so many times in Jesus' presence, because he silenced them. There was, no, there was no response to that. Jesus was always able to talk them back into a corner to the point where they had nothing. And they looked silly. It drove them absolutely nuts. Um, the reason, of course, the Pharisees didn't, didn't want to respond to Jesus is because, obviously, Jesus was a threat to everything that they held dear and everything that they held on to. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not thinking for a minute that the Pharisees didn't believe what they were teaching. I think they did believe it. But I think they convinced themselves that they then became the guardians of that. And as the guardians of that, they were just a little bit better than everybody else. Which is a very dangerous place to be. And here comes Jesus as a threat to that. And so as Jesus threatens it, then they can't handle that. Because they knew when Jesus walked in the door that nothing good could come out of Nazareth. Even though they were calling him a rabbi, he wasn't a very good rabbi. He had no background. They, they didn't take him seriously. And their personal bias was, when they walked in the doors, they were right. And Jesus was a threat to their rightness. What did I say? Sunday. Being right is always about you. Being good is always about others. And if you have to be right so bad, that means somebody has to lose. And somebody has to be wrong. See, doing good can be right. And doing the good thing is right. But being right just for the sake of being right doesn't work. And the Pharisees, they just knew they were right. And what Jesus was saying had to be wrong because it didn't line up with what they wanted to do. And all of that is brewing in the background of this conversation that's going on. Where Jesus never really works. He doesn't break the Sabbath law, by the way. In this encounter, he does not break the law. Because he didn't do anything except talk to the guy. And so for anybody sitting in the room, anybody witnessing this, they would have had to walk out being amazed at Jesus, befuddled by what the Pharisees were saying, and completely confused about how this guy got cured. But all of a sudden he was. Um, also, when you look at the passage again, let me go back to it one more time. We're not going to get to the Proverbs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a couple of accounts of this that show up in, in the Gospels. Um, but it, it talks about Jesus went to the synagogue where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. Some other translations will say, um, look, there's a man with a hand withered. Um, scripture points us out as something to take note of, because this is what becomes the, the setup for the story. And, and one of the things, and it was one of the things I jotted down in my notes off to the side somewhere. But isn't it interesting, because 
when people go to church, they don't want to be noticed. Right? I mean, you know, somebody, somebody comes to church, man, we, we do everything we can to get them to a seat where they feel comfortable. You know, we don't walk through the room and go, hey, look, withered hand, <laughs> bad hair day, no hair at all. I mean, we don't do that. We don't, we don't, we don't recognize people for that. Right? And yet, the story is, and Jesus went to the synagogue. Hey, look, there's a guy with a willing hand there. Awesome. It's going to be a great day. The whole pretext of this thing, the whole setup of the story, is it's an anti-church story. This goes against every church growth idea, everything that you're, every behavioral thing you're supposed to do in church. You don't want to do anything. And Richard even joked about it in one of the services. I don't remember which one it was. When he was welcoming the visitors, he said, well, we're not going to embarrass you by giving you a ribbon and blah, 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 blah. Because, I mean, that's one of the, what's one of the, the, the rules in, in worship. You know, it's, it's one of those unwritten rules. Don't embarrass your visitors. Make them feel welcome. Because they don't feel welcome, they're going to leave. All right? They're going to run. You know? And definitely don't call them out. Withered head. <laughs> Ugly. Woo. I don't know what you are. I mean, we don't, we, we, we don't do stuff like that. Do everything but that. Because you want people to feel comfortable. Why in the world does this guy with the withered hand feel like? When he ends up being the example for the Pharisees to ask the question, can you heal on Sunday or heal on Sabbath? It becomes one of those things where you recognize, again, Jesus' point. Is this man not more valuable than a sheep? He's saying this to the group of people who this guy wasn't more valuable than winning an argument. I mean, they were, they, were, they were sacrificing him to win the argument, to make Jesus look bad. This guy in the temple meant nothing to them. Nothing. And the only one that he meant anything to was Jesus. And the disciples, of course. And so it, 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 it causes you to take a moment to step back a little bit and any time you're at worship or whatever you're at, take a little bit, look around the room. And don't forget the value of the people that are there. What it took to get them there, the fact that they did get there, and that they're there for a reason, and that there's something that is, is going to happen in the world that day that has nothing to do with you but everything to do with God. Your job is to do the best you can do to not distract them, get in a way, and present God to them in a way that God will see them. I tell, I told our staff this, I guess a couple of staff meetings ago, and it's something that I do not like, but you have to come to grips with. I told our staff, you guys are representing God in front of people. In other words, when people look at you, their first glimpse of God is what you look like. I mean, it's, it's tough. I mean, it, 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 it's a horrible place to be because you think, well, I mean, you know, how many times am I picking my nose? Am I doing the wrong thing? I mean, all the things that you could do, but you become that person, which is why the responsibility of leadership is so tough for any leader in a church environment. Because when you speak, when you do things, you become that person 
For somebody out there, you're, you're their connection point to God. That's your job. And so when you take an inventory of the room on a Sunday morning, you've got to remember that's you. And I know often we come into worship and we want it to be all about us and our encounter of God. But you forget, yeah, but we're worshiping corporately. So yes, you should have come in wanting an encounter with God, but hopefully you've been having those all week. This is a moment where we come together to do this at one time. And there's a lot that's going on in a room on any given Sunday. Emotions are all over the planet. People have lost loved ones. People have a good week. They've lost jobs. They've got kids that are falling apart. They have a life that's just sailing like a roller coaster right now, and they don't know what to do about it. They're, on, they're high. They're low. They're dealing with addictions. They're dealing with struggles. They're dealing with bad uh, relationships. I mean, they've got all the stuff in the world going on, and all that is bouncing around the room in this little bitty place on a Sunday morning. And we start singing and worshiping and, 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 and calling on God to come and meet us at our point of need. And we all have a job and a role in that. You stand in the back and you cross your arms and you look grumpy. Somebody standing back next to you and they look over at you. Oh, that's how I'm supposed to do it. It's infectious. Because we rarely think or look at the people around us. We don't read the room very well. And if you don't read the room very well, and you don't pay attention to the people there, sadly, we become like Pharisees. We don't care who's there. They're just there so we can do what we need to do, make our point and go on. And so Jesus radically shifts all of that again with his question. So, is it more valuable for this guy or... Is he no more important than a sheep in a well? I mean, Jesus' statement, putting value on life and value on people, is absolutely, positively huge. And it is a different way of looking at things. See, we live in a culture that no matter what the culture says, no matter what the hype is, no matter what the news will tell you, no matter what the headlines read, no matter what social media will tell you, the ones that can understand the only people that can understand how to put value on people are the people who know Jesus. And that's our job. And the genius of Jesus is that he modeled that for us. The genius of Jesus is he shows us how to do it. And he shows us how to do it by doing the good that's in front of you right now. Now, some great church critic will say, but what, I don't, uh, what if you do good for them and they just don't respond? They don't make a decision for Jesus. Isn't that God's problem? I mean, I give a rip about that. I do. I care about that. But that's not my problem. Because at the end of the day, I have a bigger problem. Me. My bigger problem is, did I do what I needed to do? Because when I love on Pete, and Pete decides to tell me, go pound sand, okay, but I did what I could do. That's on Pete. I mean, my job is not to drag Pete across the finish line to the kingdom of God. Because I got news for you, Pete. I love you, brother, but if it's you and me racing for that finish line, I'm going to trip you. Because <laughs> <laughs> if one of us going to get in, I, I, I got to tell you, it's going to be me. I, I'm going to fight you for that one, right? I mean, we're going to go at it. I mean, it, it, and that's who we are as people, right? But... But at the end of the day, my job, your job, is we do what we're supposed to do. We do the good that's in front of us because people are supposed to have value. Um, 
And also, no one, as we get into the passage, we understand who's there, right? I mean, we understand the disciples there, Jesus is there, Pharisees are there, but the only one that Matthew points out is this guy with a deformed hand. He doesn't go running down the list of anybody else that's there. Um, because Matthew's writing this from a perspective of we need to understand what's important to Jesus. Jesus saw the guy with the deformed hand. See, we've been in churches for years, and I've done it. I mean, my gosh, I've done it too. Um, we get in church services, and somebody's there, some special guest, and we say, oh, look, there's the mayor sitting over there. Hello, Mr. Mayor. Uh, there's the president sitting over in the back row. Hello, Mr. President. Uh, uh, you know, there's Professor Infallible Science over there. There's Dr. Almighty Philosophy over there. I mean, you, you just go down the list of all the people that you recognize because they are important. And then you come back and you realize the most important person in the room to Jesus is the guy with the withered hand. And I want you to know when you talk about doing the good that's in front of you, to me, that's very convicting. Because I'm one of those people just like you that miss that so often. I miss who's in the room. I miss what's happening in the room so often. And it's not to beat us up. It's just a reminder we just got to do better. We just have to learn. The genius of Jesus is we, we get the opportunity time and time again, and we get the opportunity to do it good. Um, Luke, if you were to read this account, Luke, Luke is the only writer to point out that the withered hand is the man's right hand. Now, if you go back and read this in Luke, Luke will tell you that the guy's withered hand was his right hand. Now, Luke is a doctor. So Luke is probably diagnosing as he goes. <laughs> guy's got a withered hand as his right hand. Uh, in the Jewish mind, by the way, and Luke knows this as a writer, uh, the right hand is a symbol of power and strength. It's used for greetings. It's used to bestow blessing. In Jewish culture, the right hand was the clean hand, meaning a good Jew would always eat with his right hand. And so if you had a deformed right hand, you couldn't even eat with a clean hand. So even your meals were compromised because you were using your left hand. The left hand was used for bodily functions, if you know what I mean. And with apologies to all of you who be left-handed. Who's left-handed in the room? <laughs> um, the left hand is considered the unclean hand, just so you know. So. And since this, might, since this guy's right hand was withered in that culture, he was handicapped physically and psychologically. And so when Jesus restores his hand, he gives the man back his health, but he also gives the man back the ability to work in a way that he hadn't before. Historically, this guy, they say in history, was a stonemason who could no longer work because of the withered hand. That's history. It doesn't mean it's Bible. But historically, that's what it's said about him. But realistically, he got his ability to work back. But he also got something more. He got his self-respect back. Because Jesus healed his hand. And Jesus did what was good, and that good was right in front of them. Um, so some implications of this are um, Jesus is not devaluing the Sabbath. Don't miss that. Jesus is not undercutting the value of worship. 
Um, we need to get as much of our work done on days other than the worship day, whatever that is, so you can reserve that day for worship and focus on God and being with God's people. There's great value in that. The Bible says so. Um, so in other words, don't save all your household projects for Sunday. Can't come Thursday, Jeff. Got to change the air in my tires. Um, Billy Graham once said, <laughs> Billy Graham once said, Jesus tells us it's okay to help your ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath. But, as Bill only Billy can say, but, if your ox gets in the ditch every Sabbath, <laughs> you need to get rid of the ox or fill up the ditch. Right? Now that's what Dr. Graham said. Um, and there's wisdom in that, right? I mean, the, the idea is you make this a priority, right? This has got to be what you're supposed to do. Uh, the other thing is, too, I mean, and this is, this is one of the things that just uh, drives me bonkers. But again, this is culture, right? Um, you know, watch, watch how you fill up your Sunday. As a society, we worship our play and we play at our worship. thing that drives me nuts about AAU is they kill Sundays with ball games. Absolutely nuts. Drives me bonkers. Drives me nuts when Christian schools kill Wednesday nights and Sundays with sports activities. And I'm a sports guy. I love sports. I say, well, I'm, so I, I'm not up here as the advocate of yeah, I don't care anything about sports. I love sports, man. I, you know, I, I live for the game. Um, so when I say that, I'm saying that as someone who understands, who's had to deal with it, who's had to navigate my life around it when I was an athlete. Sometimes I did good, sometimes I'm not so good, sometimes I couldn't do anything about it. But you've got to make choices of how you do it. You know, some of you know my kids, and I had a middle one that liked to play soccer. It came to headbutton day when I said you're not playing on Sunday. But, I had no buts. My coach, send your coach to me. I'm not going to be able to play. No, you're not. But not because the coach won't play you. Because your father said no. We had the same dust up when it came to riding horses. What time are you riding on Sunday? Really? As she got older, I had to do some give and take. I'll give you this one. But I won't. Now, I will say to this day, she's a kid that when she comes back to town and she's in town, she always schedules her trip so she can get her to church on Sunday morning before she takes off. I, mean, I didn't do a lot right, but that stuck. I'll take a win when I can get it. But... We have to be people that hold that to be important. If church is an afterthought, then you got to change your thinking. See, because I mean, we're going to have it whether you're here or not. Okay? If you don't come, we're going to do it anyway. It's just how we are. We're bullheaded. <laughs> but it's always better when you're here. 
I mean, when, when people are out and I tell them, hey, I missed you, I mean, we're better when you're here. I mean, that's not a lie. And I'm not saying that to make them feel guilty because immediately they will give me the excuse of why they weren't there. Well, I wasn't here because I don't care why you weren't here. Unless you're dying or something. I don't care why you're not here. I just said, we missed you. We're better when you're here. That's not a lie. We're better when you're here. Or most of you. Um, Well, I was going to go to the the grain and the showbread. We don't have time. I'm sorry. Questions about that? I mean, we're done. We're kind of out of time. So obviously we didn't get back to the prayer. I didn't finish unpacking Sunday morning behind the scenes. What a horrible teacher. All right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, was, I was thinking about that this week, this, you know, this story, and it was like, Jesus walked in, and what did we see? He saw a man with a deformed heart, and he saw some, a man with a deformed hand, and the Pharisees with a deformed heart. Yeah. He asked the man for his hand, and what happened? And the Pharisees had the same offer. And uh, it, it just really struck me that... Uh, Looking at how he looked at it. Well, it also is a powerful reminder. Um, when I was 30 years old, it seemed like, and you know what, it, it's probably true. Every sermon um, dealt with beating up the Pharisees. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I was young, it seemed like every time I was preaching, I was preaching about whipping those Pharisees, yeah. kicking their butts, and all stuff like that. And I, think, and I think, you know, someone told me one time, and it's true, you, it doesn't matter if you're a speaker, you can't help but tell your story. Somewhere, if you're really smart between the lines, you can figure out what's going on in my life. <laughs> but, but fortunately, that's why we don't have anybody here with a psychology degree. And so they can't figure me out. And then your daughter have one? Yeah, I've been <laughs> I paid for it, so she's not going to say a word. Um, but, you know, as I look back, and, and, you know, and you know, one of the good gifts... And one of the blessings of, of years, and aging is a blessing most days, except in the morning when I can't get up, straighten up, and then you kind of figure it out. But I was beaten up on the Pharisees because that was my world. I was always in a battle with a deacon's group somewhere or, or some, some, some church group somewhere or some senior adult group that hated my guts. And, I'd done, I, and so it's very true. I always beating up on the Pharisees, but um, but this passage is so revealing of how evil the Pharisees are, and they're the guys that should have known better. And I really do believe that Jesus was so harsh with them because we never think about Jesus being harsh, but Jesus was harsh with them. He called them vipers, um, because I think he was he was angry and upset because. He had every right to expect more of them because they knew. And I think that's one of the reasons that he was so tough on them because they should have known better and he expected them to be better. And they weren't. Um, all right, let's pray. Let's get out of here. God, uh, we, we're glad that your genius is transferable. Because without it, we're kind of dolts. And um, we need that. We need to know what it takes to be like you in the world around us. And we need it in, in common sense, practical ways that we can flesh it out. So, Lord, if anything, I hope that the series we, we are in is accomplishing that in some way in our lives. 
be with us as we leave this place. We walk out into a world that is um, upside down, a little bit goofy, a little bit crazy. But we have truth. We have you. And so we can change the world. Remind us of that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh -huh.